0: Last week we opened our show by uh, singing. Uh, yeah. You and you and Katie were serenading. We were people into we were the singing.
1: Episode. Did we sing? I don't remember singing.
0: We didn't clip. Did I sing? We didn't clip off the the you saying hello, it's me to each other.
1: Oh, I didn't know. So we started with like.
0: I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure that the <laughs> people me. who listen to the show have now heard uh, both of your wonderful voices.
1: I wasn't. I didn't. I, are we recording though? Okay, so, like, if we're recording, I just want everyone, like, I didn't know it was my debut. Had I known it was, like, going to be my debut, I would have, I have a nice singing voice. I could have really, like, belted it out, you know?
0: You're really gone for karaoke, and maybe, and, and, <laughs> and maybe it wouldn't have been your first choice to let people be introduced to you through that Yeah,
1: song. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, okay, can I just say, like, I'm so fucking angry. I woke up today ahead of you you're it's morning for you it's like my afternoon so I've just like spent the day seething like I'm so my blood is boiling all day because I woke up to the news of it's Thursday um and first it was these ice raids it's been like not even a week since a white supremacist shot and killed like 20 people because he wanted to kill Latinos Um, because he thinks there's too many Hispanic people in America and they're taking all our jobs. Uh, And not even a week after that, you have the biggest raid in the history of the state of Mississippi where, like, over 600 people were rounded up by ICE as they went to work in food processing plants that literally nobody wants to work in, by the way. Um, And it's like their kids, like, school just started, so there's all this video of, like, children crying because they don't know where their parents are. Like, I just, what the fuck? And then on top of that, I saw this story about this Iraqi guy who has never in his life been to Iraq. He was born in, a ref- he was born in Greece in a refugee camp, or maybe not a refugee camp, but he was born in Greece. His parents had fled Iraq. He's like, uh, they're from like a, a Catholic sect. And then at the age of six months, his parents went to America. Uh, and so he's been in the U.S., in Michigan, in Detroit, since the age of six months, and he was deported in June back to Iraq, where he doesn't speak the language, and he couldn't even call his family like before he was deported, so nobody could help him. ICE like picked him up, and he has a history of mental illness, and he's also diabetic, so he's on—he literally like has no money in his pockets—is deported to Baghdad, and was living on the streets. Um, and, like, there's a video of him. I don't know who made it, but it was making the rounds because he ended up dying because he couldn't get his insulin. He ended up dying, this guy. He's 41 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just this video of him, and he's, like, saying exactly what happened. The agent that picked him up, he tried to explain to them, look, I've never been to Iraq. I don't speak Arabic. Like, you can't support me. I don't know anything else. And they deported him anyway and he's living on the streets and people, he's like sleeping on a fucking sidewalk in Baghdad. Like I just, this like just tore me apart. I've been torn about it all day. Cause the guy died and it didn't have to happen. And like, man, like what a fucking shithole. I just, it's all I've been thinking all day is the U.S. is a fucking shithole. Like for people, for like a, a certain segment of the population, it's a really nice country. If you can afford, like, a house in the suburbs and you can pay your mortgage and, like, you have nice public schools for your kids to go to, if you're, like, middle, if you're like comfortably middle class or upper middle class, life is pretty fucking good. But, like, for everyone else, which is a significant portion of the country, it's a fucking shithole.
0: Absolutely. Like, yeah.
1: I'm just, like, I, like, almost want to cry. Like, I, I really, like, this got me so emotional. I don't know why this particular story, like, I'm generally pretty angry about most of the things happening in the world that like upset people like us, but like this story in particular just really pissed me off in a way like I've just been fuming about it all day. And like especially after this guy went like on this shooting spree and then you're deport like it's like it's like you know who's probably really happy right now is the guy who killed those 20 people at that Walmart in El Paso. If you read his uh and we can talk about that too like I don't know about you, Kevin, but I read his his manifesto, as they like to call it. Um, and like his whole thing was about like, I just he wants to instill fear in the hearts of people who are Hispanic. So they'll just like voluntarily leave the country. And he wants to instill fear by fear by killing them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's August 9th here or Eighth. Yeah, 8th. It's August 8th. We're doing this show on August 8th. And it's just been. Um, a, a whirlwind of constant, constant injustice, and then some of the worst possible reactions to everything mm-hmm. that's. Everything ha- I mean, uh, you you want to talk about the mass shooting itself, but the the culture of how we respond to mass shootings it seems to get worse every single, um, every single day. Basically, every single time that anything happens, the the way that we responded it I guess in the beginning when we weren't weren't totally becoming numb to what happens when we're talking like Columbine or Sandy Hook, take the the the, the, the church attack when um was it Dylan Roof uh committed the massacre that, that maybe used that as a sort of model for how people were outraged and and couldn't really process it and we were getting really good reactions but now it's just like i feel people are really grasping they're they're grasping for just anything they can do we see it from all different sides i mean i i am waking up as i record this podcast with you and one of the first things i see when i open is that someone purporting to be doing journalism is including the tags Of people in his in in his tweets that he's sharing to let people know that these people out there on Twitter were people that the shooter uh, in I want to say Dayton was retweeting Mm -hmm.
1: okay so let's talk about this because there was two shootings and they were within the course they were the same day they were like a few days ago the one that got the most attention was the El Paso shooting because the carnage was larger and it was politically motivated. The guy who did it wrote a like wrote a manifesto before he did it and he put it online and then he went and committed his act of terrorism, right? Um, and he sp- he had political motivations. He wants to start a race war. We can talk about that too. Like he's another one of these um, white power white power like lone wolves or whatever you want to call him, um, who. Literally, like, was inspired by the Christchurch shooter and other shooters, and then even gave advice to would-be shooters on the kinds of weapons and the kinds of targets to hit. Uh, and that happened. That was very clearly—and this is not me being ideological. Like, this is what pissed me off is, like, all these people on the right were, like, the Dayton shooter was a leftist because apparently this guy's social media showed that he was, like, a fan of Elizabeth Warren and maybe, like, had retweeted or had liked some tweets by Chapo people. Um, but like the guy didn't say, there was no, I mean, first of all, he was killed with this, this. The other aspect of this is he had this like magazine that carried like a hundred rounds or something, which is insane. And he was able to kill nine people in like 30 seconds before he was shot down at like a bar. He didn't leave any sort of like uh, letter or anything saying what his motivation was. Um, he was dressed in body armor uh he did but there didn't seem to be like he didn't seem to have a specific target he was just kind of shooting people it was more like a, you know who's the guy who shot up the movie theater during that Batman movie oh
0: yeah um, the, that, but that um, was in Aurora. in Aurora yeah yeah
1: well there was Aurora Colorado more like a Sandy Hook type he seems to be more in the category of like Columbine he apparently had like uh like had been like a he fantasized about doing something similar to columbine people he went to school with say that he was a violent bully who fantasized about raping and killing people so like if the guy was doing it in the name of supporting something on the left then fine we could say it was politically motivated but he wasn't he wasn't like shooting people to try and get support for medicare for all or something like i think it's really absurd uh, that people were trying to equate these two things. Even people who aren't on the right were trying to equate these two things. They're like, well, we have to be fair. You know? If it's politically motivated, it's politically motivated. Okay, fine. Yeah, like, well, If somebody but, on the left commits a crime in the name of being on the left, like, fine, I'll say it. They did that, but that's not the case here.
0: But it's like, important to note that while this was reported by the FBI even as something they were looking into, this this violent ideology that he had the. It's not political, and they were very clear, even on CNN and the reports that I was seeing, that what they were looking at is how he was so obsessed with this violence. I mean, they even interviewed one of his ex-girlfriends to talk to her and say, like, okay, he was showing me these videos. He would show me shooting videos, mass mass shoot this spectacle. He was very obsessed with it and would break it down and with me, and and I, you know, could tell that um, uh, after I left him, you know, he didn't want me to leave that he was probably struggling with some kind of depression or some kind of mental something.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the guy killed his own sister. Like he went out partying, like he went out to the bar scene, um, in Dayton with his sister and his friend and he killed his sister. And I think he shot and wounded his friend. So like there doesn't see, I mean, there are, this is a thing like this. The, it's like the Columbine thing. There is like this, this sort of obsession violence from like sociopaths um, or psychopaths, like who maybe have like, I don't know if he was mentally ill or not, but he definitely like, something is wrong is very much wrong with your, with your head. If you like, enj- if you enjoy the idea of like mutilating and killing people. Um, So either way, like it's interesting, these two shootings happen the same day because of course it speaks to a broader issue where like in the U S guns are really accessible more than any other country. And we have a pattern of having these mass shootings and it's really fucking terrifying. And then you've got people like, you know, Sean Hannity being like, I want to see an officer like retired police force people, you know on every floor of every building in the public. And it's like the guy killed third, he was shot down within 30 seconds. Like, less than a minute, the police shot and killed this guy. But in that one minute, he was able to kill nine people. And he's, like, an amateur. He's not someone who ran around. I don't think he was, like, an expert shooter. He just had a shit ton of rounds. And he didn't have to reload. Like, there's something wrong in America where you have access to that kind of shit, right? Um, But then on top of that, the El Paso thing presents something entirely different because that was ideological. That was a part of, like, there are, of course, overlaps and similarities in terms of, like, you know, I I like being, you know, um, like fantasizing about violence. But on top of that, this guy was somebody who had an agenda. Like he was there, he was doing this to try and start a race war. He was like a Dylan Roof, and like I don't know why people. I think well, obviously I understand why people on the right were trying to make it like oh there was a left wing attacker too because like they don't want to have to deal with the issue of like right wing violence. Um, But at the same time, there's also something else like I got really frustrated with is there's, and only our listeners who are very online will (laughs) know what I'm talking about. Like you have to be very online to understand what I'm talking about here. So I'm sorry to those who aren't. And also like, you're a better person than I am for not being very online. But um, in the aftermath of the El Paso shooting specifically, there were these people who claimed to be on the left, but they're really not actual leftists. They're like pseudo leftists who were like, this is an example of the red brown alliance because um, the El Paso shooter, in his manifesto, talked about like environmentalism and how like climate change is really bad and corporations are like own the country and they're not and they're really bad. And so somehow this is supposed to be like some left wing ideology infused with right wing ideology. So they use this as an opportunity to actually attack the left and blame the left for far right shootings. Did you see this, Kevin?
0: Oh, I had no idea. I'm not even online as much as you.
1: (laughs) This is like the Alexander Reed Ross type who claims to be this like anti-fascist, but all he does is attack leftists and call them crypto fascists. Like he calls me a crypto fascist because um because I oppose like US proxy works.
0: And Alexander Reed Ross was this person who was putting posts up at the SPL Center, the Southern Poverty Law Center, and Mm -hmm. was given this platform temp for, for a short amount of time. And then, you know, he was going after you and Max and eventually those posts were actually taken down because they were defamation.
1: Well, Also like people like him, there's like a, there's like a bunch of them. It's not just him. It's a few people, um, who like to like anybody, basically like for opposing war, I'm part of a, he called, he says I'm part of a red Brown Alliance where basically like I, I'm like a red, you know, I'm like a, you know, I'm a commie who aligns with the, the Brown shirts, you know? That's what red brown alliance is supposed to refer to. Um, And they say it about like anyone who goes on like Tucker Carlson, for example, like they call Glenn Greenwald a crypto fascist too, um, even though he's literally being targeted by a fascist government, like as we speak, he's still apparently a crypto fascist. Um, But anyways, these people and those people, I know there's listeners of ours who know what I'm talking about. Like these people were using this as an opportunity to literally blame the left, like they were like, this is because of the leftists who are allying with fascists. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, so this is my issue too with the response to what happened in El Paso is it also becomes an issue of being performative and like performing and showing like, and like there's some people like who come up with the most ridiculous reasons for why it's happening that make no sense to me, but they just like want to do Twitter threads on it and like get a lot of retweets. And I, I find it really gross. But whatever, the bigger issue here too is like, there was also people like Jake Tapper who decided to use the El Paso shooting as an opportunity to point out that Palestinians are hateful towards Israelis in the same way that the white power movement is hateful towards Latinos. Oh my God. I
0: mean, I can't imagine being so addled in your brain by your status and your position in CNN. That you feel the need to draw that equivalency. Like, why? Like, honestly, you have to ask the question why can't you just sit there and condemn white supremacy without bringing in Palestinians?
1: Because that's the lens through which he sees a lot of things. Like, Jake Topper, I mean, I don't know. Like, it seems to be. I don't know why the fuck else you'd bring that up. And you know what? If you're gonna bring up that parallel, you've got it wrong, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, you've got it really <laughs> wrong. Like, yeah, there are some hateful Palestinians. It's true. That's, I mean, obviously. But like there's an occupying side that literally has genocide enthusiasts in its fucking government.
0: No, Rania, like... you need to step back because <laughs> the Palestinians enslaved many Israelis and brought them over yeah. on ships to Yeah, force the they forced them land. to come to
1: they they forced them into Israel. They brought them into Israel by force. I mean, it's just so fucking absurd. Like there was that reaction. Either way, like at the end of the day, I really think that the, like, the other issue I have is blaming it all on Trump. Like, well, I do believe that Trump definitely has bears responsibility for the right, like for like the confidence, increasing confidence in the far right. Like they see him as somebody who like represents a symbol of like, we're, you know, we're winning and emboldening them. This existed before him. Um, and it's really important to understand it in that context because like, uh, otherwise you're not gonna deal with it properly. Like, you're just gonna think getting Trump out of office is gonna fix this, but we have these kinds of things happening under Obama too. Um, and part of it was because Obama having the first black president emboldened the, like, like, uh, provoked them as well. But I mean, it's, just, it's really important not to see this through the prism of just Trump. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Like, because I do feel like a lot of outlets end up uh, like, like uh, getting away with like, they just use it as like a partisan thing. And when they do that, they do a disservice to the actual issue, which is like, there's a white power movement in America that has been ignored by law enforcement to like to a a strong degree. um, And that continues to be like, that continues to be active, that continues to train, that continues to radicalize people and we also have to understand that that they have a pool of um, of like they have a pool of like disillusioned youth that they can pull from because of the state of the world right now. Yeah. Like because of the the effects of austerity and neoliberalism. I'm not excusing it, but like I, that never becomes an issue that we talk about. Like everyone's fine with talking about this when it comes to ISIS and why people joined ISIS from the West. It was usually really stupid, ignorant idiots who have nothing else going on in their lives um, and who see a crumbling world around them and want something to join. And it's kind of, it's like this, it's a similar thing with the white power movement. And I don't know why that's so difficult to say without getting like bombarded. Because if you do say that, you get bombarded by people who are like, oh, you're excusing it. And it's like, it's not about excusing it. It's about trying to understand it. Because unless you understand it, you can't deal with it. Because then another response that you have to this shit is you've got people from like the FBI and then even people from like the ISIS task force, like like Brett McGurk, who used to head the ISIS coalition, signed on to some letter where they were like, we have to do a war on terror at home. And it's like, what? Because the war on terror was a fucking disaster. You want to bring that shit to America? Are you kidding me? Like, no. Not only is that kind of caused an erosion of civil liberties, but the war on terror just created more terrorism. And like, also what would a war on terror domestically even mean? Like, are you just gonna like bomb some white nationalist hotbed the way you bombed Raqqa? Like, I don't know, I don't get it. Like, are you gonna arm, are you gonna arm certain moderate white supremacists against the really radical white supremacists? You know what I mean? Like, cause that's what they did in the Middle East. It's like, that's a terrible idea. Absolutely terrible. And I've seen so many people getting on board with it. And I think that's why it's also dangerous to try and be like, we should treat the white supremacists the way we treat Islamism. It's like, you guys, the way we treat Islamism is not, is really, really, really not a good guide to follow.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's, it's a terrible thing to apply the terrorism framework to what's happening with this violence. I've always thought that we should just address it as white supremacy because white supremacy is inherently... Violent, but obviously they want a term like terrorism that doesn't have the sort of um, it doesn't carry that guilt. It doesn't carry that sort of baggage. It doesn't carry yeah. all the legacies that come with talking about white supremacy. That forces you to uh, address the brutality of the country in which you were born, and 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 the different traditions and and how this country was founded. But you know we're really sort of. You know, in, in some cases, you know, we talk about like late stage capitalism. I'm doing this on the fly here. You know, maybe you could sort of say like we're in late stage slavery or have been. We've been like seeing it die and we've been seeing it in its forms just really go. Um, and and different pockets of the country have clung to their their ways over the past century or more to trying to continue an institution, whereas you know people were supposedly emancipated back in the late 1800s, but you still have prison labor. You still have people within bars who are forced into providing their labor and can't really do much to resist, Whether they're immigrants or they're black people or whatever, if you, or just plain poor working class individuals, they have no means to resist and say that they can't. Um, and they they don't want to provide this or else they'll end up in solitary confinement or face some kind of retaliation um, you have the different parts of the country with rampant disinvestment um, the places where you you know you, those are the first to see rebellions break out or see riots but you also see them being heavily policed and uh, the the segregated schools and all of that And so like you know in a way it's like Slavery did get abolished, but there are different manifestations of it that that pop up over and over. And I think the the sort of shooter, when I process in my head what happened with El Paso, when you see these sort of individuals come to the fore and decide to take action, you know, it's because they're really acting out this sort of fear that they're that they're losing um, something that they they're they're losing their control. They're losing the kind of order that they believe should be protected so as that becomes more fragile as they feel that that's more fragile then they act out their um their worst nightmares upon us
1: right exactly i mean and what was crazy too is like the um this is like a common theme with the white power movement is the guy in his manifesto like He's like, look what happened to the Native Americans when, when like, our ancestors invaded. They didn't take it seriously, and they ended up getting wiped out. And like now, it's us. Now we're gonna get wiped out if we don't take it seriously. We have to do what they didn't do. And it, to me, it's so like, it's so interesting because the guy just like sees what happened to Native Americans not as a project of like white supremacist violence and like colonization. But as, like, what naturally happens between two different ethnicities and, like, it's, it's winner takes all. Like, that's really how that dude sees it. And, like, that just also speaks to a lack of fucking education, too, because, you know, in the U.S., you don't learn. You don't learn. Do you remember? I mean, I remember, I think we're, like, I'm a few years older than you. Yeah. Um, so, like, our schooling probably wasn't that much different, like, our primary schooling probably wasn't that much different, although you grew up in a different state than I did. But I didn't really learn that there was a genocide of Native Americans, did you? Well,
0: I wouldn't say that that was like hit home in that manner. I mean, obviously, the biggest issue with uh, standard education in uh, elementary schools is when you get taught what happens with christopher columbus it's when you get taught what happens with all those explorers you know it's always that they just discovered the like the it was just lying there we just got here and 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 but, there was yeah and,
1: and there was some like and then there was some <laughs> conflict between the natives right the natives yeah. like there was some conflict and hardship and the superior people with the superior weapons ended up winning that's just what happens
0: yeah and it wasn't like until you, i got my hands on a copy of a people's history of the united states and then read The very specific details that were there from Howard Zinn about what happened with the Arawak natives and all Mm -hmm. of those, uh, all of the different indigenous people that existed on the East Coast. And you read about the (laughs) conflicts and you know what was going on. And then you start to process it and you go, you know what, I really um, shouldn't be so excited and indoctrinated by this Disney film of Pocahontas, you know, like. Right,
1: right. Or like for me, it was the first book that I read. It was People's History was the second one I read that was like, whoa. The first one for me was Lies, My Teacher Told Me. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was like, what the fuck? I was really angry. I remember being like really outraged, you know. I was like, wow. But then you kind of look back and you realize it's not that they necessarily like lie to you. They just leave a lot out. Yeah. Like it's not, it's like omission.
0: Yeah, no, it's the like, admission's the key because it's sort yeah. of like, what can we, or what can we spend more time on emphasizing? And that that's that's the thing we're going to talk about. So, you know, it's not that some of these things didn't happen. Like you say, it's that we're just not talking about the full story of how we got from, le- how all these people get from leaving Europe to colonizing and then starting right. and founding a country uh, and then you know everything is romanticized the revolution against the british and it's it's such a great story that you want to learn
1: romanticized in hamilton well yeah
0: absolutely (laughs) well and now you know um with i i understand why it's done but you know saying i think all people should be able to take some kind of ownership in this american story so let's put black faces on these characters so that Mm -hmm. um people can take part in the story as well um there's one other thing i wanted to mention before we moved on from the massacres of the past week which i thought was uh super ridiculous but it's also very online so it's possible that people have (laughs) no idea well i think that'll just be the new thing like whenever we're going to talk about something very inside it's just it's very online and uh (laughs) i like the i like that term (laughs) <laughs> uh and it was the what happened with joaquin castro mm-hmm. and oh uh, yeah, yeah yeah and uh this just kind of threw me over and the reason why it put me over Ranyas, is, is not because of some sort of like it tugged on my humanity within me the same way that like you reacted to the uh the raids the ice raids and 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 what happened to the man who was deported uh You know, the reason why I reacted so viscerally is because some of the people who have demonized progressives who engage in reporting on campaign contributions were involved in aiding this right wing, really crocodile tears, a pseudo backlash That was very much just propaganda against Joaquin Castro. So what Joaquin Castro did was he tweeted a graphic that said, who's funding Trump? And Joaquin is a um, congressman from Texas. He's also Mm -hmm. involved in his brother's presidential campaign. He's also a twin. And it's very possible that you've sent a tweet at some point in your life that had the wrong brother in it and you were talking about Julian, but you meant to talk about. Washington. Kevin, are
1: you talking about yourself again? <laughs> and Kate,
0: I saw Katie Helper do it. Did it too. Oh, okay. Um, every they other. Do, per- I mean,
1: they're twins. Yeah. Every
0: other it's person hard. has gone through that phase where they suddenly discovered there are two Castros out there. <laughs> in our, we did not know this, um, and it, and so, uh, anyways, he sent this tweet: "Sad to see so many San Antonians as 2019 maximum donors to Donald Trump." Their contributions are fueling a campaign of hate that labels Hispanic immigrants as invaders. Mm -hmm. And he named these businesses, these owners that were involved, and he blasted it out. Um, And apparently he got some of this information from a Democratic group that uh, tracks campaign contributions. Um, Regardless, it's public data. It's uh, it's reported to the Federal Election Commission. You have to file this information. And yet you have people like Republicans like Kevin McCarthy, who is the minority leader in the House, freaking out and saying he's targeting and harassing Americans because of their political beliefs. You've got people like Steve Scalise, who is, you know, not far from being full blown Nazi, who's again invoking the fact that he was shot at a charity baseball game in order to shut down accountability for how people are receiving these campaign contributions. And then what what really drove me over is that I get on and I see that Maggie Haberman at the New York Times yep. gets on and she says, I don't want to RT this because I don't want to put these people's names in my feed, but this is dangerous by any campaign. And um, all he, all... All Castro was really doing, all Joaquin was doing, was sharing this data that is available to all of us in order to help us deal with the contradictions of businesses who claim to care about the people in their community and then are turning around and donating to Donald Trump.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you hundred percent. And I saw that and I was like, Why is Maggie Haberman defending Trump's like big donors?
0: And it makes no fucking sense. But also this comes in the same week that they had that very shitty headline that got enough attention. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. We're not gonna be the people who inform our listeners that it existed, but the you know, Trump um calls for unity against racism was was the the essence of the headline that was published in a New York Times newspaper, despite the fact that it was a very canned teleprompter speech that he gave, that he, you know, he did not expound upon it. He was not, it was not a conversation. It was not a, uh, a press conference where he started to genuinely speak and seemed to have a awakening that surprised and stunned us all and changed all of the past three to four years that we've been, introduced to his ghoulish nonsense i mean he just read what his people told him to say and the new york times gave him a crossover headline that could appeal to i mean i'm sure a lot of the public were like well finally (sighs) i wondered how long it was going to take but you know it's good that after to after this he finally gets it
1: (laughs) what do you think was like the agenda behind attacking him for that attacking castro
0: about attacking Castro. So I think that they got really swept up in the right-wing language around how it was spoken about because the people who were saying, they were accusing him of doxing. They were saying that he was doxing these business owners. And so sharing the names of those people, I know they were worried that, I guess, there might be some kind of violence meted out against those owners because they support Donald Trump. But, you know, by the way, this comes in the same week that Stephen Ross is getting a lot of attention as one of the owners of, um, oh, he's an owner of the Miami Dolphins, and he's also involved in doing a fundraiser. He runs a couple companies called SoulCycle and Equinox, and he's getting- The
1: guy a ba- who runs SoulCycle donated to Trump?
0: Yeah, he runs SoulCycle, and he's organizing a fundraiser. Oh, shit! <laughs> um, he's, he's running a- uh, and he has a nonprofit that was set up in the midst of the rising, you know, take a knee movement within the NFL. And one of the ba- one of the football players on the Dolphins, Kenny Stills, calls him out and says, you know, there's no way that your nonprofit can be organized around these claims that you have of wanting to advance racial and social justice. And yet you're turning around and you're gonna raise this money for Donald Trump's campaign so um, and, and they had like worked together on starting this nonprofit and so so I think the thing is really what I believe is that people recognize the power of the internet and how easy it is to get people if you connect if you connect these businesses to their donations that has proven to be effective in the past people uh, so, you know, in, as as far as, um, you know, this, this goes, um, I, I think Equinox is actually a, a fitness place. Um, and uh, there were people. Call- yeah. I'm
1: just surprised because a lot of liberals like that shit.
0: Yeah. And so uh, most, uh, th- there there were people who were calling up and canceling their memberships Good. in LA Good. and saying, you know, I'm not, that's, that's not going to be my club anymore. And so uh, I think that that has a real power. And I think that, you know Maggie Haberman's what she's doing there is so reprehensible because it's catering to this authoritarian tendency to not have transparency because there are potentially violent people out there who will target individuals but that's that's obviously just some kind of a boogeyman put out there so that there can be So that you can excuse this kind of thing, right? Like, maybe
1: she just doesn't want to have to cancel her soul cycle (laughs) class. I mean, that's, I really think that's probably what it is. I could totally see her being a soul cycle kind of person.
0: Well, or, you know, I mean, (laughs) but, or she, I, I think some of these people are so changed by what happened with the Hillary Clinton campaign that they've completely lost any sort of ethic they had prior to the Hillary Clinton campaign. Because I could see her saying that there were Bernie Sanders supporters who were th- tossing around the internet all this stuff about who funds Hillary Clinton. And oh, by the way, there were Russian trolls who were spreading <laughs> all of this information about who funds the Clinton Foundation and how Hillary Clinton gets her money. And it was weaponized and it was used against us. So we need to be careful against the people out there who weaponize this sort of information and then she sees how all this other stuff could also be used dangerously by the left that's sort of false equivalent you know the same thing that makes Jack Jake Tapper say that he's got to bring the Palestinians into it and point out that some people in Gaza have committed violence even though we're really on and trying to talk about the white supremacy problem in this country it's the same thing that makes Maggie feel like she as an establishment journalist, has to also mention that's possible. It's just possible that maybe some Antifa might come to these business owners' houses and I don't know, throw sludge at their apartment or something like that. I don't know the horror
1: if that were to happen. I I, I think Antifa should do that. I'm just saying. Um, the other thing uh, about like that whole uh, that whole thing is like. I forgot what I was going to say. I had a really good point to make, and it just went right out of my brain. I'm There's just so much I'm angry about, and this just makes me angrier. It really does. But moving forward, like, I feel like they would be fine doing it for Bernie. Like, do you really think that Maggie Haberman would be, would be like – Like, I feel like she would be fine saying these are Bernie Sanders' donors,
0: no? Well, I think that would fit into – uh, a way they see the world that's acceptable. So to say that there's crossover to say that, okay, this person was committing violence, but he also had dabbled in supporting Bernie Sanders. I mean, that would, uh, if you recall, the charity baseball event that ended up with Steve Scalise getting hurt and other people being shot, the, the, person who did that was a volunteer for a very short amount of time for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And so immediately you get this reaction with the right trying to capitalize on it. But you also have people who are establishment journalists pointing out that there's sort of this both sides ism that that people on the left and the right are prone to these violent ideologies that they have to. Acknowledge right, the fr- okay. have, you, you always see that they have to point out that there are fringes because what they're trying to do is get the center to maintain its power. They want the they want the moderates to be the ones who come out on top because that's where the status quo is invested.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really, really uh, excellent point um, because they would definitely jump at the chance to make to like They like to both sides things when it's specifically talking about the left because these people are, are at the end of the day – they like to see themselves as what they call centrists. They're like, we're in the center. We're not on either extreme. Um, And so they actually do see us as as bad as Trump's people, I think.
0: Yeah, and they're also technocratic, or I kind of call them what they, they appoint themselves as democracy managers. The way that they talk to us is to say things as if they know better than we do how to operate this country. Uh, I mean, we're all not doing a really good fucking job. We ended up with Donald Trump as the person who's running this country, and I don't think anybody can claim to know how to work this contraption if that's the person that's running the United States at this point. But the problem that I have is that they'll sit there and they say, for example, um, you'll you'll have Bernie Sanders going on about Medicare for all, and then the reaction immediately is, yeah, but there's no way that that could ever pass in the Senate. So moving on. And and that becomes a reason not to engage in the idea. So because of all of these different flaws in the system or the features of the system, then they take those as like, well, I have a better grasp of it than you do. I have a better grasp of the way things are. And so that's why we are the very important people who get to be on these shows talking at you. And this is why you should listen to me.
1: Uh, so on that note, I did want to mention, um, moving away from domestic politics to international politics, that uh, the Venezuelan government is saying that the U.S. has, um, has basically blocked a ship uh, containing soy, Um, like 25,000 tons of soy, they detained the ship in the Panama Canal. Um, So you've got a situation where uh, the U.S., because of U.S. sanctions, you're actually blocking food to Venezuela that they need for agriculture production. Um, Apparently the ship is, like the Panama Canal Authority is saying, that the canal is operating normally without the delay and that no ship has been detained. So it's kind of a back and forth of he said, she said. But this comes amidst um, the U.S. announcing that it's basically going to be enforcing uh, an, a full, a full-on embargo of Venezuela, which is really dangerous because we already know from uh, the report that uh, the Center for Economic Economic and what, CEPR? I can't remember what it stands for. The Center for,
0: for Economic for Policy Economic and Research.
1: Policy. I was like, what's the P for? The Center for Economic Policy, uh, Economic Policy and Research released a uh, study months ago. We had Mark uh, Wise brought on the show to discuss it, the, where they uh, estimated that 40,000 people in Venezuela had died in the course of um, two years due to the uh, impact of U.S. sanctions. So an embargo is like, basically it's like a blockade. It's like a medieval siege uh, of Venezuela that the U.S. is enforcing. Um, and it's, this is a disaster. It's already really bad. It's already destroyed the Venezuelan economy. Um, and it's already destabilizing the entire region. In fact, I have a Chilean friend, a little bit of an anecdotal side note, I have a Chilean friend who's in town right now visiting and um, he was telling me that like the issue of Venezuelan refugees is actually uh, impacting his own government because Chile um, has received like four or five hundred thousand Venezuelans in the last couple of years, which is a lot. I mean, that's a lot of people. And uh, even though a lot of them are middle class as people who can afford flights, obviously, because Chile is not easy to walk to. Um, or like to drive to, uh, it's like, even though it's like middle-class, like educated people, um, who speak the language and generally you would think that'd be easier for them to integrate. It's actually led to a rise in the right in Chile, uh, as mm. a result based on a hatred of Venezuelans. hmm um, because you have an influx of outsiders into the country. So in a way, like the issue of Venezuela, where you've actually got people being like leaving the country because of the economic situation, which is a result of mostly U S sanctions, you have a destabilization of the region and a rise of like far right parties as a result. So similar kind of to Europe. I mean, that's what the Syrian refugee crisis did to Europe. Um, So anyway, this is something to be paying attention to and something to be, that we need to be opposing. Like, and I don't really see anyone talking about it. Obviously right now the U.S. is sort of consumed with an endless um, stream of terrible, terrible news domestically that it's really hard to pay attention to what the U.S. is continuing to do around the world. Uh, But we gotta keep doing that because the U.S. is continuing to fuck up the region. And you know what, like Latin America is a part of America's region. It's a part of the Americas. So in, in, in many ways, it is connected to everything happening domestically right now with all the anti-immigrant fervor. And I would ex- you, would, you would think that the liberals who are so like against racism, uh, against anti-immigrant racism and want to be all inclusive and like hug an immigrant and hug a migrant or whatever would be wanting to support policies um, that or wouldn't be supporting policies that would create more refugees, but instead, a lot of liberals are actually supportive of this shit that America does in Latin America. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I mean, I just don't get it. At the end of the day, it's like, okay, you want to hug refugees and you want to hug like Latinos and be inclusive. But at the same time, like, what's the like, you're kind of guaranteeing if you keep supporting this terrible foreign policy, you're guaranteeing a future of El Paso's and of being separated from their children for Venezuelans who are ultimately going to be fleeing
0: Venezuela. You know what I mean? Yeah. So one point I want to make, and I'm not doing this because I think that the candidates would necessarily say something good. I'm just saying that it contributes to our collective uh, apathy and ignorance is both of the democratic presidential debates have curiously left out the Venezuela
1: crisis Mm -hmm. and
0: um, the, the meddling or the efforts toward regime change by the Trump administration. And, and um i just think that's worth noting uh also you know when i when i think about what's going on down there with the with ships this possibility of seeing more and more ships with food being seized i mean we should call it probably what it is i mean this is piracy right like these mm-hmm. like basically this is our us military behaving like pirates and taking uh food from people seizing these ships and i mean that's the kind of it's
1: actually the, the irony too, Kevin, after the U.S. made this big PR show yeah. <laughs> over getting humanitarian aid into Venezuela, like, and now you're blocking a ship of food. Like, it's unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Well, and, then, and the
1: media is like nowhere to be found. They're like, yeah, whatever.
0: Well, it confirms the way that I had felt because if you had people who were elements within the right wing who were throwing these Molotov cocktail type uh, bottles or whatever at the trucks that were coming over and the aid was going up in flames and you didn't really see much outrage from the administration over having that set on fire with it directed at the people who were responsible um, because the New York Times actually did expose and, and and make it mainstream who was responsible. I mean, they didn't start. You, Blumenthal, Max Blumenthal, Dan Cohen particularly, people who were there and had video and were sharing it, they were bringing that to light. But my point being that that you talk about starvation and the hunger that is in Venezuela, and you're using that basically as a political football to justify... Regime change and so it's clear that when you don't get the kind of outrage you should get from people on the right setting those trucks on fire that then you you know you see the ships being seized and food not getting in and you know it's it's very clear that this is all just another part of trying to help people who are in the this is what I've said multiple times the people who are in the country politically on the right who don't have majority support And again, they still seem to think that this sort of thing is going to get people to support them. But I just don't see how Venezuelans aren't going to recognize that this is the United States committing an act of basically terrorism against them by seizing up this food and not allowing them to have access to it, which they need to survive.
1: Could you imagine how Americans would react if you took away their food? Do you look at the way people act when like... When like they they uh threaten to tax like soda.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> like, <laughs> or like people people get mad when like they, they threaten to ban plastic straws. Like <laughs> Yeah, or take away
0: refills or something. <laughs> yeah. They react to not being able to Go back to the table for seconds. Let alone... Okay, okay,
1: okay. This is—I'm not trying to like fat shame. I but here, but like imagine—it's a cultural you, like, thing. It imagine, no, be... imagine if you threatened to take away Mike Pompeo's food. <laughs> 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 Can we do that, like in retaliation? Maybe we, we should we, just. Like, starve mike pompeo we'll
0: just go boycott the vendor of the cia and try to make it almost <laughs> impossible for mike pompeo to get cafeteria food we'll like,
1: we'll, like we'll seize mike pompeo's uh lunch
0: yeah orders. yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> like confiscate his food i mean it's so absurd it's so absurd and like
0: oh my god so there's uh, another thing that's not really related but uh caitlin johnstone tied it together so i'm going to use this as an opportunity to mention it as well because we followed it on this show um and just to say that the uh this judge who is uh hearing the challenge uh for chelsea manning in her case um when it comes to being able to um you know she's challenging the fact that she's been jailed for refusing to testify against wikileaks refusing to go before this grand jury which you know again like it's a mystery to me as much as it is to you as to what they might be doing anymore because julian assange has already been indicted and the extradition has begun and so if the grand jury still has business that suggests that there's other people that they would like to indict Um, because there's nothing that she can say about anyone other than julian Um, and also there's nothing that she can say that they don't need that, that that they would need in order to indict him so they really don't need her but anyway she's in jail and this judge actually refused to give her a hearing on the matter of the fact that she's been issued these sanctions she's facing these sanctions against her for resisting the United States government and she's in jail and she's expecting to be in jail for um, by when it's all said and done, up to 18 months because that's the ter- that's the term of the grand jury. But the biggest issue, and why I'm talking about this is because she, she, they had said her lawyers that the financial records show that I don't have the resources to pay nearly a half million dollars, uh, like, uh, yeah, nearly a half million dollars that I'm going to owe if you continue this because she's getting fined thousand dollars every day until the end of the grand jury every day that she refuses to testify. That's about $441,000 by the time that she gets out from this term. And also the grand jury can decide to reinstate, uh, renew itself. And then she goes back to jail and then it just starts all over again. She'd be in contempt again. And she starts to accrue these fines or whatever punishment the judge wants to give her. And the judge says that, no, um, you know, despite the records that you've shown me, you absolutely would be able to pay this when you get out, um, I believe. So I am going to maintain my order against you, forcing you to pay all of these fines. Um, and I, and I, Chelsea maintains, you know, this is not going to make me change my mind. The fact that you're going to hit me with these millions of dollars of fines, that doesn't mean I'm going to change what I do at all, and it, it, you know, it's admirable, it's um, an incredible act of courage right now on the part of what she's doing, especially the fact that she's re-traumatizing herself um, and has been just so that she can stand up to this grand jury that is engaged in a fishing expedition against a media organization. Uh, but the, the fact is that we are all being punished by this judge, this is the point that I made, we are all being punished by this judge because the reason why he believes she has the uh, resources to pay all of those fines is because she could start a GoFundMe and ask people for donations and raise the money in order to pay the fines against her for her grand jury resistance. And so because it would be easy for her to cash in on her status as a celebrity figure, then she is not being unjustly punished is his I believe that's his rationale.
1: Yeah, I um, I'm with you on that, and I actually like. Has this gotten any mainstream attention? Like, does any the mainstream just doesn't care about Chelsea Manning like at all?
0: Well, nobody. It really, seems to be. Well, nobody really cares and has ever cared about this grand jury, even though it has real ramifications for freedom of the press. I mean, we have a government institution right now that is engaged in an investigation of a media organization. Not only that, we just had a judge in New York defend their rights. Uh, There was an outcome for the DNC's lawsuit against WikiLeaks that I covered last week. And it very clearly said that they are an international news organization. Um, I think he said it had an undescript structure. Um, which means he's not really sure how it's organized. But the judge said it was an international news organization and that journalists have an un- have a right to publish and ask for stolen information. They have a right to ask for these records. Um, and whether they're from WikiLeaks or they're from the Washington Post, they have a right to publish this information and do stories and defended them. And that, to me, is a clear statement that these people should not be targeted. The fact that they were involved in all of these publications over the last decade, they should yep. not be swept up in any sort of... If a judge is, is looking at what happened allegedly around Russiagate and disentangling it all, all of the different threads of alleged conspiracies and still saying very clearly, and this was a guy who was appointed by Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. So it's not like... He's some extremist right winger who's trying to uh, kowtow to Donald Trump and gain some kind of, you know, he wants to see his name tweeted tomorrow morning and be on Fox News or something. And he's doing this because he understands that if you go all the way back to the Pentagon Papers, you should be defending this as uh, a right that people are able to publish. And so now I think what you have again, I'll go back to Maggie Haberman and, and people like her. This fact that what happened with the Podesta emails and everything, it completely neutralized any sort of ethic that they had. Um, Now they just feel this animosity towards all of these people. And at our own peril, they do not say a goddamn thing to Donald Trump about what is happening with this investigation. That, by the way, was restarted by his administration. Obama let it stop. He didn't do the one thing that I wish had happened, which is make a public announcement and dissolve it completely before our eyes and say, we aren't going to do this anymore. But it was suspended. It wasn't happening. There wasn't, there wasn't any effort to prosecute anybody after 2013. So, so the, the difference as we've talked about before is very clear. The, the escalation is important just as it's important at the border, the way that the we've escalated and attacked immigrants, but yet you don't see the continuity uh, addressed. You don't see the fact that the escalation has happened as something that people are criticizing daily in the media. And so, yeah, nobody's really addressing what's going on with Chelsea, even though, uh, you know, it, it's very clear that there should not be this kind of money. There, that you should not also be in prison and face a fine. You are.
1: No, it's she, insane. She
0: is in. She is in jail facing a fine, and she is also in jail. You know, it's it's at, at, it's insane to me that our country allows this to happen to anybody. But the fact that it's not one or the other is even more alarming to me and then you know when you hear the attorneys break it down and they say that corporations are treated like this this is how this is how corporations are because you can't jail them so you find them maybe like ten fifty thousand dollars a day to force people to testify and respond to subpoenas so you know what they're doing to Chelsea would be viable if they were forcing Donald Trump officials to comply with any kind of lawsuits but it's not viable for Chelsea.
1: Yeah, no, it's all really outrageous. And it's like, I think that Caitlin Johnstone said it like this, and I thought it was a good way to put it. It, She somehow managed to connect like the Chelsea Manning thing to Venezuela. And she was like, our government just like sanctions anything it doesn't like, whether it's countries or people. And these are like sanctions on Chelsea Manning. Like, it's just, it's like a bully. It's like a, she's just being bullied. She's being bullied financially, and, like, no one cares. Meanwhile, Julian Assange is just being, like, slowly killed, and everybody's cheering for it. Not even do they not care. They're actually cheering for it.
0: Yeah, and it's almost impossible to get reports. I mean, there are people who are his friends. There's, you know, you have John Pilger, a journalist, who will go visit and reports on what his status is. But, you know, I... Uh, Find it amazing that there isn't more regular reporting um, with him, that people aren't talking about what's going on in the facility. Uh, I've heard also, uh, you know, I'm not based in London. I'm not based in the United Kingdom. I find it a complete dereliction of duty on the part of journalists there that they aren't covering one story that his people were actually spoon feeding to journalists. And, And here it is, Rania. Uh, The guy who's now the WikiLeaks editor in chief, Christian Haraston, he was talking about how austerity has impacted the prisons in the United Hmm. Kingdom and how Hmm. Julian's been complaining about the lack of investment and how it's affecting the way he's being handled and treated in the facility. And he feels that it's affecting his access to medical care and that there are other ways in which it is clear That Belmarsh, the security that this prison that he's in is not being maintained in the way that it had five or 10 years ago. That's a story. And any journalist out there can go grab that and do something with it, but they have not taken any interest in covering that at all. Um, So if I was in the UK, that's what I would be interested in trying to figure out is what had happened with the decline because it's. You know, not only because it's impacting Julia now, but like, to me, that just opens up a window on what's happening with British society and everything. Um, and I'll, I'll say here, um, as we're, we're getting closer to the end of our show, um, I'm planning to go to London next year, actually, to cover this oh, expedition cool. hearing.
1: Good, good. It's important.
0: Uh, and and the, the, the main obstacle that I have to figure out is how I would get into the Westminster magistrate court in order to cover the extradition hearing. I don't want to arrive in London and then find out I can only stand with the yellow vests and all these other people who support Julian outside and not be in there to report on the extradition proceedings. So I'm going to do whatever I have to, to get a seat in there. And I think, you know, what's amazing is these people who are in the media, they don't do the work on a weekly basis to cover each development of this case, but then when it comes time to trot him out before a judge, and the the U.S. is going to make the case for why they should be able to bring him and and have the proverbial proverbial hanging here in the United States, then they're all just going to you know, en masse descend upon the court for the spectacle of you know they want to see a hacker trotted out there and extradited to the U.S. I mean they'll the love splashing the images all over and, and uh, whipping up the demonization of him once again. Right. But, but, you know, meanwhile, the people who actually have a good understanding of this case, the, the very few myself and only a few others who cover it on a daily basis and understand, you know, we we're at risk of not getting access to the court because these more powerful media institutions that just don't care are, going to edge us out for seats in that courtroom
1: right that's uh, true they will get seats to smear him more
0: that does it for this week's show we posted some exclusive content for our patrons you can find that at patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure and if you are not a patron here's Kalik with a message for you on how you can become a patron and support unauthorized disclosure today
1: To all of our patrons out there, thanks so much for your monthly support. And for our regular listeners, it's probably time for you to become a patron. I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure. Your support will help us produce more episodes, up our quality, create more exclusive swag, and continue to have on cool guests you love, like Katie Halper, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Mate, and other smart people with important things to say. So become a patron now.